And Lord, uh, we come this morning wanting to hear your voice, wanting to learn more of you and your word, but, but Lord, we recognize that there are many distractions. And as you continue to pray, maybe the distraction this morning is troublesome times in your home, in your marriage, maybe wrestling through some issues with your children, maybe with an ex-wife or husband, with the loss of a job, or maybe a future job, and all the uncertainties that go with those things. Would you pray that, that the Lord, the Spirit of the Almighty Living God, would allow those distractions to leave you long enough that you can hear His Word from this mighty Gospel of Luke. Father, take these distractions away that we can concentrate on you and trust you for the words of life in you and in this book. In Christ's name, amen. Many years ago, as a young person uh, growing up, one of my favorite uh, television shows was that TV series Mission Impossible. Matter of fact, I uh, was just out of the theater the other night and I saw that they're doing a remake. They're going to do a movie called the Mission Impossible movie, I guess, and some no-name actor, Tom Cruise or something, is playing the part. I don't think he'll ever pull it off. But you remember, I think it was Peter Graves that played the part of Jim, the silver-haired Mission Impossible team leader. And uh, you would find the opening scene with Jim out either in some secluded remote place, maybe in a ship or in an alley behind some dumpster, and he would find this little cassette tape hidden, and he would plug it into the cassette machine and out would speak this voice which would describe the mission, the challenge, the dare that went out to the Mission Impossible team. And uh, it would always end like this, something like this. Jim, if you should accept this mission, all the records of this conversation will be destroyed. Good luck, Jim. And then the tape <laughs> would burn up and the smoke would come filtering out of the speakers. I thought, what, you know, what are going through cassette players week after week in this show? But uh, the challenge was to maybe uh, uh, redeem some kidnapped victim to uh, put down some drug lord, some kingpin of the mafia. And then they would go out in this, this ragtag team of folks and they would go into a mission that seemed impossible. You know, uh, as I thought about the characters in that show, it's a very politically correct group of folks before the term politically correct was even considered. But you had two or three women in that team. You had four or five men, several different racial backgrounds. But what interests me the most is that when it came time to accomplish a mission, they had to come together as a team. They were trained, they were prepared, but what happened in every episode? There was always some little glitch, wasn't there? You know, a tripwire or a monitor or a screen that was videotaping them. Something would go wrong and they would have to reply on, uh, 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 rely on some of the little skills, some of the little things in this team that would pull them through. Life is like that. As I get older, I still enjoy the dares, the, the people out there that say, you know, it just can't be done. And ministry is a lot like that. God has a mission for us. And in the ninth chapter of the Gospel of Luke, our Lord gives the twelve disciples a mission that I think at first, if we would put ourselves in their sandals, so to speak, we would have felt the mission would be impossible. But then, Bill went around this last week singing this little song, Little as much when God is in it. 
Little as much when God is in it. Labor not for wealth or fame. There is a crown and you can win it if you go in Jesus' name. Little is much when God is in it. And folks, that's exactly what these disciples discovered as they went out. Now, what we're going to see happen in these first 17 verses of chapter 9 are three three things. The first section is in verses 1 through 4, and it's what I would call the preparation for the disciples' mission. Okay, the, the, the preparation for mission. The second section is in verses 5 through 11, and that is the response to the mission. In other words, what, how did the people respond and react to what the disciples were going to share with them? The third and final section is in verses 12 through 17, the feeding of the 5,000, which I call future mission impossibles. At least they seem to be impossible, don't they? Well, let's read the first four verses as we get into this word this morning. Luke begins by saying, When Jesus had called the twelve together, he gave them power and authority to drive out all demons and to cure diseases, and he sent them out to preach the kingdom of God and to heal the sick. He told them, Take nothing for the journey, no staff, no bag, no bread, no money, no extra tunic, an extra coat. Whatever house you enter, stay there until you leave that town. Now, in these first four verses, we see the preparation for the mission. Notice in verse 1, we see the calling of the disciples. He called the disciples. The second thing we see is that he gives them power. Notice it says he gave them power and authority. And then finally in verse 2, the third thing in preparation is he sent them out and he told them specifically what to say, what to do, where to go. Well, let's look at the first one that Jesus called them together in verse 1. When Jesus had called the twelve together, it says, and the parallel passage to this Luke passage is Mark chapter 6, verse 7. Mark gives us a little bit more information, a little more detail, and he says that Jesus called them, the disciples, to himself. You see what's going on there? See, for the past year and a half, Jesus called these twelve men to spend time with him. They listened to his teaching. They uh, witnessed his humility uh, in, in regards to how he treated people, both those people that were favorable towards his message as well as those who were antagonistic towards the good news. They got to see Jesus in action in terms of healing people, casting out demons, but most of all, restoring people to the healing that they needed the most. That was a spiritual healing, one of salvation. You see, that's what Jesus has done when he has called you to himself. He has called you through his message, the good news, as Eugene Peterson puts it, the message of his goodness and grace. And the way we get to know Jesus in an intimate way, just as the disciples did, is through the reading of the good word. That's why we take so much time week after week and we devote such time and energy to the preaching and teaching of the word. Not just here on Sunday mornings, but in the Sunday school classes for our children in our youth ministries, in our, in our senior citizen class and singles ministries. That's why we study the scriptures, because he's calling us to himself. He, he teaches us about who he is and about who we are. The second way in which he calls us to himself is through prayer. In those quiet moments of conversational discussion, prayer, we seek out God. We make requests. We give praise and adoration. We confess our sins. 
We have intercessory prayers for other people. But in that whole process, what's going on, we speak, we get quiet and listen, he answers, and once again, we sense his calling to himself. It's through the calling of the Word of God, it's through the calling of our prayer time with God that He prepares us for the ministries and the missions that He has. This past week, matter of fact, yesterday, I got a letter from Christelle O'Loughlin. And Crystal is, uh, has been part of the youth ministry for several years. She came to me years ago just as a little freshman. She was struggling with some, some issues in her life. We talked. She became more and more involved with the youth ministry. And she got into God's Word. She started spending time praying with folks. She graduated last year. And I get this letter... And she is in a, on a team. Right now she's uh, in San Diego, I believe it is. And she's being prepared for a ministry in uh, Rio de Janeiro, in Brazil. And as I got to think about her life, I thought, you know, here's an 18-year-old daughter. And they, there's like 10 or 12 folks on this team. The oldest person on the team is 29 years old. He's from Germany. There are people from California, Arizona, Denmark, Canada, Switzerland, Kansas, Norway... And then this little 18-year-old gal from Boise, Idaho, going to Brazil. Folks, somewhere along the lines, she got called by Jesus himself, and she understands what the calling is. Now, that doesn't mean that we all need to go to Rio de Janeiro. This is just where God has placed her, but he's got a calling for you this morning. Now, the second way in which he prepares us also is in verse 1. Notice it says that he gave them power and authority to accomplish his mission. Jesus didn't send them out on their own strength and their own power. Aren't you thankful for that? But in his authority, in his power. Listen to what Paul says in that wonderful prayer in Ephesians 2. I pray that out of his glorious riches, he may strengthen you with what? With power. Through his spirit in your inner being. The word there in, in Ephesians and, and here in Luke 9 is the same word from which we get the word dynamite. It's explosive. It has power to, to make pebbles out of mountains. I was talking with Margot Anderson this past couple of weeks. Margot's been help, helping us put together family camp. Margot was telling me about this uh, Christmas present that she received. Women, you're going to like this. It's a sewing machine. It's a serger. Now, I'm not... They're too familiar with sewing machines, okay? But apparently a serger sewing machine has power. I mean, Tim the Tomb Man would be proud of this sewing machine. It has all of what you need. It has all these different spools running the thread through these needles. And apparently it has the kind of power that you can make garments in, in minutes, whereas before, if you work with some of the antiquated equipment out there, it takes maybe uh, days. So it's kind of a commercial a sewing machine, but it has the power to produce and put out. And Margot sits at that sewing machine and she's been equipped and called to sew and she's got the authority and the power right there as that thing goes to work. <laughs> Margot, if you're listening this morning, I expect a nice t-shirt or some, some <laughs> garment. Well, the, spirit of the, power, uh, the, the power of the Holy Spirit in our lives is like that, folks. He is there to help us accomplish the mission. He's there to help us overcome sin that has uh, been a burden in our lives. He's there to, to love the unlovely that are out there like little Crystal is doing in, in Rio de Janeiro. And, and, and He's in our lives so that we might preach the good news that leads men and women out of darkness into light. We really appreciated you all helping send us to Promise Keepers down in Atlanta. A pastor by the name of Raleigh Washington, a black preacher, man, he could preach the word. 
He was from the Rock of Our Salvation Church in Chicago, Illinois, and he shared a story with, with us that I wanted to share with you because I think it illustrates this principle of understanding what it means to be called and have power and authority. The story was about a little old lady who had grown up, uh, probably now by this time in her 80s, very old, fragile lady, but had a love for Jesus. Uh, she understood the principle of being called and empowered. And she lived next door to a, a young man who was was acclaimed atheist. And, and she, she loved this man. She, she reached out to this man. She, she shared Jesus with him. But uh, he, he was unresponsive. He would not believe. He just kept claiming there is no God. There is no God. And uh, you got to remember, this little old lady had no cemetery, I mean, seminary degree. She had no formal training. She had, what she did have was this understanding of who God is in her life. So she kept ministering to this man. One day, this young gentleman, frustrated by her efforts to to, uh, share Christ with her, with him, he went out and bought several bags of groceries, and he placed them on her front porch, and he rang the doorbell, and he went and hid in the the bushes. He said, I'm going to get her this time. And so the little old lady came out, she saw those groceries, and she just looked up into the heavens and said, Praise you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Hallelujah, because she was in, she was destitute. She was in need. She needed that food. And the, this, this young man jumped out of the bushes and he said, Ha! I got you this time, you old lady, you old fool. He says, There is no God. I purchased those groceries for you. I went to the store and I bagged those up. And she says, No, you didn't. God did it. And he said, No, I did it. And they argue back and forth. They argue back and forth. God did it. No, I did it. God did it. I did it. God did it. I did it. And finally, the man, frustrated, the little young man, frustrated, says, I can tell you what every item is in those grocery bags. Not only that, but I've got the receipt right here in my pocket. And he pulls it out and he waved in her face and he said, what do you say about that? God is dead. There is no God. I bought these groceries. And she looked at the receipt. She looked him in the eyes and she says, all that receipt proves is that God did it. He just made the devil buy it. <laughs> Folks, you see... See how powerful he is? I mean, he can get that devil to do anything he wants him to do. She had an understanding of of these principles, being called by Jesus and being filled with his power and authority. And she kept loving that man despite his atheism. And that's why Paul concludes that prayer in Ephesians. I started the prayer reading it just a moment ago. I'm going to finish it now. It says, now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine according to his power that has worked with it is at work within us to him be glory in the church. That's you and I and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. I thank God for that power. I confess that I don't always understand it. I can't always explain it. It's a God thing. It's spiritual. It's supernatural. But like this little old lady, you and I need to trust God for this power. We need to understand that he's calling us to a mission that he's enabled us to go out and accomplish the mission impossible is because little is much when God is in it. The third and final principle we see in these first four verses is in, in verses uh, two through four. Notice that our, uh, uh, Luke says, Our Lord sent them out to preach the kingdom of God and to heal the sick. You see, it doesn't do any good to understand that you've been called. It doesn't do any good to, to know you've been empowered doesn't do Margot Anderson any good to know she's got that surgery sewing machine if she doesn't 
go out and use it. And Jesus sends out the disciples, I'm sure, on a mission that had to seem impossible, but uh, just so that they don't feel alone. Uh, the Gospel of Mark tells us that Jesus sent them out in twos. You see, there's strength and safety in numbers, isn't there? That's why we don't do ministry here at Cole alone. That's why Rod and Mark are out there in youth ministry, but they got have 20, 30 people helping them. I see those college students out there just loving up junior hires. And that's the way you recruit and train folks to do that ministry. There's a team concept in place so that when somebody gets discouraged, you, another person comes alongside and picks them and sets them right side up again, encourages them to go on. Not only does he send us out in twos, but he makes it clear in verse 2 and again in verse 6 what we are supposed to do. He says to preach the gospel and to heal people. Now the word that he uses here for preach is really evangelize. It means to go out and share the good news, to evangelize. And and I know that when some of you hear that word, it, it sends fear because you're thinking that we're going to send you out and do some street ministry in Boise next Friday night. Matter of fact, we are. <laughs> But the idea behind the word really is, uh, matter of fact, turn with me back to, to Luke uh, chapter 8. See, the reason this word evangelize scares us because we think, well, I can't do that, Dennis. That's not my spiritual gift. That's for the Billy Grahams and the Luis Palau's and, the, and uh, the Nick and Laura Armstrongs. But uh, listen to what Luke says. And, and you remember the story. We just studied this two weeks ago. This is about the uh, man who had all these demons in his life. And Jesus comes along and he he redeems this man by casting out these demons. The demons go in the pigs. They run over the hill into the water and everybody sits around and has a deviled ham sandwich. And then they, then the uh, then the man who had the demon in his life guess where he's at? He's sitting at the feet of Jesus because Jesus has made him whole again. He's been cured. And this man wants to go with Jesus more than anything else. In verse 38 it says, The man begged to go with Jesus, but Jesus sent him away say, saying, No, you, you go home and tell how much God has done for you. So the man went away and told all the other town, all, told all over the town how much Jesus had done for him. Folks, preaching the gospel, evangelism, is nothing more than telling what Jesus has done for you and I. That's all it is. Just befriending folks, sitting down with them. That's what I did for years with high schoolers. Go out and have a Coke, watch them at a basketball game. And then sooner or later, the old young life philosophy is earn the right to be heard. You'd earn that right to be heard and they'd ask you about your life. And then you had this wonderful opportunity to share Christ with them. You know what Jesus is doing in my life? They couldn't believe it, you know. I can't believe what Jesus is doing in my life. So you don't need that seminary degree. You don't need apologetics training, although that doesn't hurt, you know, the idea, apologetics, just the idea of, of knowing how to present your faith or defend your faith. You don't need to wait until you become a mature, perfect Christian because it isn't going to happen, but you need to be willing to be sent out and to be used. Years ago, as a, as a young life, I came to Christ at 16 through a young life ministry. I graduated at 18, that's amazing, and then as a freshman in high school, and the reason I think that they call us freshmen is because we're fresh out of high school. We think we're real men, but we're kind of fresh in that area. we got a long ways to go. But you know that didn't matter to God? Because God challenged me through a Young Life area director to start a Young Life club across town. So you never take a, a high school graduate and put him back in his old 
high school. That's like a high schooler without any honor going back to his, his old campus. So he sent us across town to West High School, his brand new high school in Bakersfield, California. And there, a bunch of Mission Impossible uh, college graduates got together and we, we started this Young Life ministry. Now, folks, we had very little training. We, we attended some Bible studies and we watched Young Life leader lead songs. And we did some crazy skits. And then we got up and we just presented the gospel week after week after week. And boy, we made mistakes. We trembled in our little black high-top tennis shoes as we went out on those campuses. But I won't be surprised if I get to heaven and Jesus says, You know what, Dennis? You were filled with so much authority and power at 18 that you did far more greater wonderful things than you did after you attended the Cole Center Biblical Studies program. Now, let me not confuse you there. I'm not saying it's not good to get trained. and we have That's why we have the Study Center training program. I'm just saying, don't be afraid wherever you're at. If you're 16, 18, 80, and you may be new to the faith, just be willing to, to be sent out and let God use you. Now, verse 4 gives us a little uh, more description as to what we're supposed to do. And he, and he says, take nothing for the journey. No staff, no bag, no bread, no money, no extra tunic. That means an extra coat. Now, I can just imagine what some of you ladies are thinking. You know, Dennis, I am married to a man like this. Every time we go camping, he says, honey, pack light. Don't bring a tent. We're going to sleep under the stars. It won't rain. And food, who needs food? Throw in a bag of flour, a couple eggs. I got the fly rod. I'll provide dinner. Yeah, right. Extra underwear, socks, we'll just rinse them out in the creek. You talk about endangered species. Boy, we got them when you do that. I've been with some of those fellows and seen those socks at the end of a camping trip. Well, if your husband has used this verse as a... Pack light philosophy. You tell him this. You tell him that the next time you go camping and fishing, whatever, that he can do that as long as everybody he runs into on the lake and in the campground he shares Jesus with. No, what what our Lord had in mind here, I think, was uh, not a strategy, not a standard. You see, if we adopted this pack light and just sent them out, we would send Nick and Laura Armstrong back to Indonesia without suitcases. Well, that's we're not going to do that. What our Lord had in mind here is that there is an urgent mission. The mission is urgent. But whatever God is calling you to do in that ministry, you trust Him because He will supply your needs to accomplish it. The idea here is dependency. Eugene Peterson puts it this way in the message. He says, don't load yourselves up with equipment, folks. Keep it simple. You are the equipment. That's his point. We're sending our students to Mexico. I want to thank you because, you know, they raised a lot of money here in the last couple of weeks for that bake sale out there. And you have a part in what they're going to do down there, see? Now, they're supposed to take sleeping bags. But what, 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 what they got to do is depend on God when they get down there. Who knows if the trailer will make it? But they got to depend on God. Well, let's find out what the response is, the second part of, of this mission. The response is given to us in verses 5 through 11. Jesus says, if people do not welcome you, shake the dust off of your feet when you leave their town as a testimony against them. So they set out and went from village to village, preaching or evangelizing the gospel and healing people everywhere. Now Herod, that is Herod Antipas, the Tetrarch, and by the way, the the word there, Tetrarch, comes from a, a Greek word, two words, tetra meaning four and arcane meaning to rule. In that day, remember, Herod the Great had left his great big region, his province, he split it up into four different regions, and Herod Antipas was one of his sons who received one-fourth 
of, uh, of that property. And so Herod, that they're speaking of here, is the one who rules over Galilee and that other region called Perea, just to the southeast of the Sea of Galilee. Well, Herod the Tetrarch heard about all that was going on, and he was perplexed because some were saying that John had been raised from the dead. I guess he was feeling a little bit guilty, too, because, remember, it was this Herod who had John's head lopped off while John was in prison. Others were, were saying that it was Elijah that he had appeared, and still others that one of the prophets of long ago had come back to life. But Herod said, I beheaded John. Who then is this I hear such things about? And he tried to see him. Verse 10, when the apostles returned, they reported to Jesus what they had done. Then he took them with him, and they withdrew by themselves to a town called Bethsaida. But the crowds learned about it and followed him. He welcomed them and spoke to them about the kingdom of God and healed those who needed healing. You see, after they had gone out and, and in this mission impossible, Jesus, they return and Jesus wants to get off and have some quiet time. Let him get some R&R, rest, talk about the mission, find out what went right, what went wrong, so he could send them back out. But they got interrupted here and so... Our Lord himself takes over the ministry while they're with him and he preaches the kingdom and he goes on healing, folks. Well, we see three responses in verses 5 through 11. The first response is that some people that we share the good news with are, are going to disbelieve. They're just not going to accept the truth. And Jesus tells us in verse 5 that we are to shake the dust off of our feet as a testimony to them. What exactly did our Lord mean by this? When we share Christ with our neighbor and they refuse to listen, do we kick a little dirt in their face? I don't think that's quite what he had in mind. You see, uh, this was an ancient practice. It was a symbol of judgment on an unresponsive town. Matter of fact, uh, when, when Jews would leave the, the, a Gentile nation or region and enter back into their own homeland, they would shake the, the dust off their feet. They didn't want to track any of that Gentile belief system back into their to their faith that they had. Turn with me over to uh, Luke chapter 10 because our Lord talks a little bit more about this same principle. Luke 10, 10 says uh, the, the same thing. But when you enter a town and are not welcome, go into its streets and say, even the dust of your, your town that sticks to our feet, we will wipe off against you. Yet be sure of this, the kingdom of God is near. I tell you, it will be more bearable on that day for Sodom than for that town. And jump down to verse 16. See, our Lord says to the disciples, He who listens to you, listens to me. He who rejects you, rejects me. What our Lord has in mind here is that a village or town that was unresponsive, that would not receive the disciples' good news, the message, is that they weren't rejecting them, they were rejecting God himself. They were rejecting Christ. And this rejection, this disbelief, it, it condemned the town itself. It was just a symbol of judgment that these people were bringing on themselves. So how do we respond when we're sharing Christ with a co-worker, when we are talking with our neighbors in our neighborhood and they don't believe? Well, we don't need to condemn them because their own disbelief has already condemned them. What we do is we continue to love them. It's our responsibility, I think, to continue to, to be open, just as that little old lady was willing to be open with this atheist that she shared Christ with. 
The second response we see in this was one of curiosity, and we see that in the life of Herod in verse 9 of chapter 9. See, we're told that Herod had heard all about what was going on, all of the miracles that were, were taking place, the people that were coming to salvation, and he wanted to see Jesus. Now, we know from Luke chapter 23 that he finally gets this wish. But see, there are people out there that are just curious people. They're not true, sincere seekers of who Christ is. And in chapter 23, this is what it says about Herod. Remember, Pilate sends Herod, uh, sends Jesus to Herod because Jesus was from the region of Galilee, from which Herod ruled over. And Herod, uh, Luke says this about Herod. It says that he was greatly pleased, that is Herod, for he hoped to see him perform a miracle. See, there's some out there that aren't serious seekers. They just are in on it for the action. They want to see the powerful, the miracles. They're more interested in seeing that than making Jesus Christ Lord of their life. And you see, Herod Antipas had no room either in his heart or on his throne for the real king. The last response we see is that people genuinely received the message they believed. Mark 6, once again, the parallel passage, gives us more of a description that when the disciples returned to Jesus, they, they were excited about how they drove out demons how they healed many sick people, how people came to a, a saving knowledge and grace of, of Jesus Christ, that they were not only physically healed, but spiritually redeemed. Many of you don't know that I spent uh, some time in the state penitentiary in uh, Deer Lodge, Montana. Let me rephrase that. <laughs> I worked in the state prison in Montana. They hired me to work in the state prison at Montana, okay? I, for the first time, I, I had a chance to use my, my degree. I was a phys ed recreation degree, and they hired me to be an assistant recreation director. They, they have activities in prison for convicts, for inmates, so that they, their time is, is kept busy. They, they don't have all this time on their hands to plot ways to create problems. And in the recreation department, the, the director, it didn't take me long to discover that he had actually recruited men to work for us that were the hardened criminals. I mean, these were the con bosses. These were the big, tough guys. These were the fellows that were doing some hard time. And I realized that the thinking behind that was, was that when I worked in, in, in the prison, in, in the gym or the hobby room, uh, sometimes I'd be in, in there with 200 inmates at one time and two guards, two guards. And so the, the thinking was that if there ever was a riot that would probably take place in a, in a concentrated area where there's lots of inmates, had a lot of room to move. And so we had these, these hardened convicts working for us because we figured if we built a strong enough relationship with them that when it came time for something like that, of course we were hoping it wouldn't, that they would say, well, let's just take Dennis for a hostage. We won't kill him. <laughs> well, thanks, fellas. That would be nice. One of the guys that I had working for me, and I'll just give you his first name for confidentiality reasons, but uh, I had a chance to get to know this fellow. He had been in two other, well, more than two other prisons, but some federal prisons. He, uh, Fred had uh, became an Aryan brother. If you know anything about the Aryan Nations Church and the white supremacy movement, Fred was an, a, a white supremacist, and he, he became a supremacist out of really trying to protect his own life because in Marion, Illinois, is where they had both the Mexican Mafia 
and the Black Panther group. They also had the Aryan Brotherhood, and he became an Aryan, really, to, to save his life, and he was stabbed several times there in that prison, almost died. Well, Fred finally got sent back to Deer Lodge, Montana, where he was doing two consecutive 40-year sentences for a murder up in Great Falls. I, I began to develop a friendship with him. We talked about spiritual things. I got to talk to him about his white supremacy beliefs. And he, he had quite an understanding and knowledge of the scriptures. You'd be surprised how much he read the, the Bible. Did he believe? No. Was he a curious seeker? I don't know. When I left uh, the prison there, I went and saw Fred, who was now locked up in maximum security, along with all of the people we had working for us in the recreation department, because they tried to kill another inmate. Uh, actually, it was a transferred inmate from Boise, Idaho, when you had the riot here several years ago, and you burned down your prison. They sent part of the inmates to us. They tried to kill this inmate because this inmate had threatened Fred's life. One thing I learned about Fred was that he came to me right off the bat, and he told me, Dennis, he says, I'll never stab you in the back. If i got a beef with you, I'm coming right face to face. I said, well, thanks, Fred, for that warning. <laughs> well, they tried to kill this inmate. This inmate ended up they took him to Deer Lodge. They said, there's no way we can help this fellow. They took him to Butte, Montana, and this man lived. And they broke both of his arms, his legs, his collarbone, had head wounds, uh, uh, chest wounds, and he should have never lived. And so I go in to say, a matter of fact, I was leaving the prison to go back to work in the mines. And I went in to say goodbye to Fred, and I, we had a long conversation. And I said, Fred, I, I took him to Ecclesiastes, and I said, you know, by all rights, this man should have died. You and your thugs, you know, did quite a job on him. But Ecclesiastes teaches that there is an appointed time to be born and to die. And my God is bigger, Fred, than your God, who you serve. He's bigger than you. I left that prison. I lost touch with him. You want to hear about a God thing, a supernatural thing? I get on the plane to Atlanta in Salt Lake City, and I'm flying to Atlanta, and, and I'm sitting in the very last row. I thought I'm going to have all this next three and a half hours all to myself in this fellow comes along, he puts his bag down, starts to put things in the upper compartment. I look up and on his coat it says, Montana State Prison Chaplain. And there was Bill Walters, the guy that I, I hadn't seen Bill in 13 years since I left Montana. Tried to see him two years ago and he was out of town. And Bill Walters sits down right next to me. We were in the same church together, so we started talking about the last three, 13 years of our lives, about our families, and finally I get to the question, Bill, what about Fred? Whatever happened to Fred? He said, Denny, you'll never believe it. You'll never, in a lifetime, you will not believe what happened. A year ago, Fred gave his life to Christ, started attending the chapel, got involved in Bible study. And I said, what in the world happened? He said, the man that committed the murder that Fred was charged with came to Christ two or three years before Fred did. He wrote a letter to the authorities, and he told the authorities that he was a trigger man, that Fred did not commit the crime. And Fred gave his heart to Christ because little is much when God is in it. I wrote this guy off, so to speak, but God saved this man's heart. Fred was just recently paroled. What a wonderful story about being called, about being prepared, about being sent out. That leads us to the final part of this book, and we're not going to read the closing verses. Many of you know this story. Go home and read it again. It's verses 12 through 17. It's what I call future mission impossibles. You remember what took place. The disciples gather around our Lord. Jesus 
is teaching this large crowd of 5,000 people plus. The, the disciples come along and say, now Jesus, send them, send them to another village. They, they've got to find a place to rest and eat. And what does our Lord say to them in verse 13? He says, you give them something to eat. Now, why did Jesus do that? Jesus could have done it himself. Just, you know, verse, what, what is it, 11 says that he had been healing people all day long. He could have fed them. Well, I believe that our Lord challenges the, the disciples to this next mission because, see, they had just returned from a successful mission. They had healed people. They had cast out demons. They had shared their faith. But they looked at this feeding of the 5,000 as something physically impossible. Well, see, I think the, the principle, the lesson is that when God is in it, there's nothing impossible. Not only will God use what little we have to offer, but when we invest that in the lives of people, it returns to us kind of twofold. Notice what verse 17 says. They all ate and were satisfied, and the disciples picked up 12 basketfuls of broken pieces that were left over. I bet you the disciples sat down and started eating themselves. They've been busy feeding all of these, these folks. That's why our Lord says, you see, it's better to serve than to be served, that we get a blessing back that we never expected when we start to give just the little things that God has called you and I to give. So what's the lesson for us this morning? What do we, how do we close this? Well, well, God's strategy of reaching a dying world began with 12 men. And his strategy has not changed in over 2,000 years. He started with a small group of men. And he asked those men to, to just give what little they had. Offer what five loaves of bread you have. Offer the two fish that you have to a spiritually starving world. He prepared them, but he didn't wait for them to become perfect, polished uh, products, did he? Not only did he prepare them, but he empowered them. He, he gave them the authority. We have that as well. And then he sent them on a mission that seemed impossible, but with little, little as much when God is in it. Folks, I don't know what God is calling you to this morning. I know that many of you are already serving Christ in growth groups and Sunday school classes, singing in the choir. But the challenge that we're left with is that he's prepared us, he's empowered us, he wants to send us out. Would you stand with me as we uh, close in prayer? And then Bill, come on up and lead us in our final song. Father, we uh, what a wonderful story this is. And it's more than just a story, it's a challenge. We thank, thank you, Father, that you have uh, called us and prepared us. And I know for some in here, they are are, uh, are very fearful of, of just being used by you. They, they think they need to know more. Uh, but I would uh, ask that your spirit would encourage them, Lord, that, that they are empowered. They are able because of who you are and what you are in our lives. Father, we accept the challenge. We want to be used by you in a, in a community that's hurting, that's dying because they have no knowledge of the saving grace of your Son, Jesus Christ, in, in whose name we pray. Amen.